Listener discretion advised by the sound contains salty language. So if you don't like that, turn it down now. No, now, like right now. Okay. Let's start this fucking show. <laughs> so what does the C really stand for? Do you not give that away? It can't be for crank. You're not Erica Crank Burnett. No, you know, um, <laughs> it's it's Christine. Um, the reason I started doing that is, you know, my byline has a C in it. And... <laughs> This is a very professional podcast. <laughs> the microphone literally fell. That was amazing. That was so good. From the Coast Salish land of Seattle, we're By the Sound, your community-invested podcast. I'm Sarah Mays, sitting this week with Chelsea Alvarez and Aisha Hauser. On this week's episode, Aisha and I chat with Seattle journalist Erica C. Barnett, who tells us about her new book, Quitter, a memoir of drinking, relapse, and recovery. This is By the Sound. How you doing? I went to the gynecologist just for fun. That's how my, my family is mad at me. Like, you shouldn't go to the doctor. I'm like, oh, no, they're open. I, I'm, go, I'm going for an outing. That's what's happening. So yeah, just a fun little outing. My roommate goes to uh, Bartels when they get really bored. It's like, wow, we're... That's where we are. We're struggling here. <laughs> it's hard for extroverts. It's hard for extroverts. It is, though. Yeah, and my, well, my whole pet peeve is people going in groups, you know, oh, uh, God. just that, like, no, two or more, like, taking your whole goddamn family or, you know, or young couples in love. Like, normally, I'm all about that shit, you know, like, yeah. I, I'm, <laughs> I'm like, the, the, the hand-holding, the silly, like, positive romantic energy, like, I'm for it, yeah. but not right now in a yeah. fucking grocery I mean, store. It is the only place you can go on a date. Like, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I think some of the parks have reopened. And uh, some of them, but I, it's fucking lit at the parks. Yeah, <laughs> it's too many goddamn people. I tried to um, last weekend. Me and my partner went to uh, Ballard to like go for a walk. We went to the marina and. It was uh, not crowded exactly, but there were like way too many people perambulating, like navigating other people's bodies in space. And this was on a rainy day. Mm. Um, it was just a fucking chore. There was also a guy walking around in a Trump hat and no mask. And it was just like, oh, Jesus, it was fucking boring. He was boring. Yeah. It's such, well, I mean, they're, they're such a cliche. But then, so are we. Yeah, that's true. (laughs) Today's episode was recorded at the end of February, and we've been holding on to it because our guest um, has a book coming out at the beginning of July. It is Erica C. Barnett, local journalist from The C is for Crank. We'll be back after that with some gratitude or else. Sarah. Chelsea. When you say that By the Sound is a community-invested podcast, what does that mean for our listeners? Ah, glad you asked. It means that in addition to hearing our conversations about local issues and interviews with our most interesting Seattle-area neighbors, fans of the show can join our listener community online by supporting the podcast on Patreon. Doing so will unlock access to our private Facebook group. What are we posting in the Facebook group? (laughs) Well, in addition to exclusive previews about what we'll be discussing on the show, we offer a curated stream of the best and most provocative local news stories each day. That's dope. How much will it cost to join? Our online community membership is available to all patrons starting at $5 per month. How else can fans of the show invest in this community? Our supporters on Patreon, who contribute $10 or more per month, will receive exclusive invitations to buy the sound meetups at Seattle-area coffee shops, bars, and parks, where they could meet by the sound co-hosts, guests, and other local fans of the show. Sweet. Where should listeners go to donate? They can visit bythesound.net and click on the donate button. That's bythesound.net. Or go directly to patreon.com slash bythesound. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash bythesound. Our guest today is Erica C. Barnett of the C is for crank.com. She is a local politics reporter 
and the author of the new book, Quitter, A Memoir of Drinking, Relapse, and Recovery. Welcome to By the Sound, Erica. Thank you. I'm excited to be here. Yay! Uh, We will have links to the new book and to your blog in the show notes. Uh, Members of our online community, we're By the Sound, will probably be familiar with their articles because those show up uh, with great regularity. Yes. Um, So... Something I just noticed now that I'm I'm seeing the book for the first time and that it I'm seeing the subtitle for the first time. Uh, one of the words in the subtitle is relapse. Yes. So, what would you tell yourself if you could go back to before that relapse? Oh well, I mean, which one is the question? <laughs> yeah, because you know, I mean. So I relapsed a bunch of times, and that's mm-hmm. kind of what the book is about. Um, it's about the fact that relapse isn't the end of the story, that you're not a loser, and you haven't failed if you relapse from an addiction. In fact, it's really, really common to relapse. It's more common than not relapsing. And so I think what I would tell myself is is basically that, is you're not a failure. You know, there may be people who think you're a failure and people in your life who thought, you know, that when I went to treatment for the first time, I would come out and it would be like a shiny, like, car wash. Mm-hmm. And um, and it t- totally didn't work out that way. And And I just had no idea. I went into the whole treatment system and the whole, like, recovery system thinking that, you know, it was one and done. I went into detox the first time thinking that I would be like clean and sober the second I got out and it would be fine. And it took more than five years after that of just relapsing, trying to How old were you the first time? What's that? How old were you? How old I was. Do I want to admit this? Um, Let's see. So it was, I would have been 31 years old the first time I Mm -hmm. went to detox. And the first time I went to rehab was six years after that. Mm -hmm. So that was in 2014. Um, I'm 42 now, so do the math um, <laughs> <laughs> because I can't. Um, yeah, and so it was it was like a long journey, mm-hmm. and then I got sober at the beginning of 2015. So it was like uh, almost eight years between those two points. Mm-hmm. And uh, now it's been five years. It's been a little more than five years. Yeah. So, yay! And what do you think about the the? I don't know if it's controversy or the discussion dialogue about AA and perhaps the um, abstinence route isn't exactly for everyone. Oh, it's definitely not for everyone. And this is one thing I write about in the book. Um, I, um, you know, I know Holly Whitaker has a book out about, um, it's called Drink Like a Woman. Um, I should be plugging my book, I know, but her, (laughs) um, but she's written really eloquently in her book about how AA is patriarchal and how, you know, it can like be really unwelcoming. Now that said, um, I will tell you that AA was part of my story and Mm. abstinence is part of my story, is my story. I'm not a person who can drink. Um, I think in Seattle and probably in a lot of other liberal cities, like, there are there are as many AA meetings as you know you can possibly want, and you can find a group if that's the route you want to go. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think like you know, alcohol use disorder is a spectrum, and same thing with you know maybe even more so with drugs because a lot of um, drugs that people get addicted to have you know medications that actually help with them. Alcohol doesn't have a whole lot of really great medications. Um, but I mean, I think better is better is, you know, the philosophy of harm reduction. Mm. And I'm a really big believer in that. Um, even though for me, like I kind of got to the point where like I was going to die. I mean, Mm. I was at a really, really low point Mm. and I stayed there for a really long time. And, um, and so I found AA helpful. I found, you know, I have, I have a sponsor, um, and it's um, I don't go to meetings where people where I don't really go to a lot of meetings with men, to be honest, because mm. men do tend to kind of shout you down and have a lot of opinions and have a lot of things to say about the women in their lives that are really unpleasant to hear. And so um, so I tend to like veer away from that and try to be, you know, surround myself with with women who are not going to be Jesusy and preachy at me. And and I, and I find that's possible, but I also think it's possible to get sober, you know, all kinds of different ways, and it's possible to stop drinking as much, you know, for a lot of people. It just wasn't part of my story, you know. Something I've wondered about AA is, so I used to smoke. I smoked a pack a day for about 15 years, and, uh, you know, as with a lot of people who have multiple quit attempts with drinking, I... I think I probably had nine quit attempts with smoking before I 
finally stopped. And um, Congratulations, because I've heard that is like mm. as hard as drinking to stop. Well, it's been, uh, I've made it 10 years um, as of last November, so I'm really proud of that. That's um, awesome. But the thing is, though, I I don't think about it very much now. Mm-hmm. And I feel like it would be a lot harder if I was going to regular meetings, calling myself a smoker, mm-hmm. uh, defining myself as a smoker, and hearing people talk a lot about smoking. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so I, I'm this just I don't um, I, I consider myself an ex-smoker, right? and I consider myself an ex-drinker too. Uh-huh. And you know, I mean, the alcoholic label, like it's not one that I use in stories to describe other people. And I don't use the word addict because I do think that is stigmatizing. Um, in meetings, you know, people do use that term. Um, mm-hmm. And so you are, to a certain extent, defining yourself in that way. Um, but I would say that meetings are not about, and AA and NA is not about talking about you know, drinking. I mean, it's just, it's just not, I would say that I get more exposure to talk about drinking and like just drink, you know, encouragement to drink and all that stuff Mm -hmm. from like society as a whole. I mean, you go in the grocery store, you go to like get gas, you, you know, go out to, to like get to know a colleague after work. I mean, it's all like drinking is just absolutely pervasive everywhere. Um, to, to an extent that I think smoking kind of is, but it's kind of not. I mean, I know more people than that drink than people that smoke. Nowadays, yeah. And it's, <laughs> and it's definitely not like stigmatized not to smoke. And mm-hmm. I think it is stigmatized to be somebody who chooses not to drink or says that they can't drink, you know. Um, but I, yeah, it's... It's an interesting. It's an interesting observation. I mean, I I'm sure there are people for whom meetings are a trigger. I know I've heard that a lot about NA meetings, mm. um, because just in my experience, those tend to be a little bit more um, like drugalog talking. Like, kind of here's you know here's all the like crazy shit I got up to. Right. Um, that's not like I don't know alcoholics. Like we tend to laugh about the shit that we got into, and like you know I can laugh about like the most dark, like fucked up things that I did now because I've got some distance from it and I realize mm-hmm. it was because of a disease. But um, I have never, I've never found meetings to be like a trigger or something that makes me want to drink. But I know that that's some people's experience, which is why, again, like it's not for everybody. Yeah. And I don't go, I mean, when I first started, I, five years ago, I was like, I mean, I was absolutely desperate and, um, and I was willing to do anything. And, yeah. um, and so I started going to meetings every single day and a lot of people do that. And now, you know, I mean, hopefully my sponsor won't listen to this, but I don't really go to meetings anymore. And, um, you know, I'll go occasionally, but it's not an, an everyday part of my life, but it was a lifeline for me to be around people who had like actually succeeded and gotten through this thing and like were five years ahead of me or 10 years ahead of me and to see how great their lives were compared to how they were, you know, when they were where I was when I started coming in, which is unemployed, unemployable, greasy haired, wearing sweatpants with chicken stains on them. You know, I mean, it was not, it was not a hot look. What I really found to be true about AA is I went in hating it. And I mean, I started going in 2008 when I was first starting to get sober. And I was like, fuck all you people. You guys are brainwashed cult members because they all seem so fucking happy. Um, But like, granted, I was so toxic. Like I, you know, I went to, um, I'm not LGBT. I went to a gay and lesbian meeting. No, a lesbian meeting for six months just thinking, wow, there's a lot of lesbians in AA. Not having any idea. Oh, like you didn't know. I, I was so self-absorbed oh that I was God. just like, I was like, cool. Like, I'm so glad there's all these, like, supportive women. But, but boy, I guess none of them are straight, huh? <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry. That's so funny. It was a great meeting. It was at the Capitol Hill Alano Club, which I think is, is still around. They've moved. But um, so I hated it at first. I mean, it took me six years to, like, actually just say, okay, Jesus Christ, like, I'll try this because nothing else has worked. Yeah. And I and I actually have a theory about AA, which I don't think I talk about in the book. But um, do you know? Are you familiar with cognitive behavioral therapy? Yes. yes. So I think AA is cognitive behavioral exactly. therapy in a very disorganized manner over many years by non professionals. 
I really do because all you're doing is like learning how to talk back to your negative thoughts, learning how to own things that you've done and take responsibility for shit, but also not blame yourself for everything. And you have a sponsor. And you have, yeah, right. And you have somebody to talk to. You get a coin. You get a coin. So you have little rewards. Cognitive behavioral therapy. It's almost like also some motivational interviewing type stuff. New blog post for C is for Crank. I know. I know. I keep wanting to write about this. So excellent. But I mean, it, but it's true. I mean, I've been through CBT. I think CBT is fucking amazing. Me too. Yeah. And, um, and at the same time I was going to AA like all the time and I was like, oh my God, like we're just doing CBT with each other. Like that's all this is. Yeah. And it's free, (laughs) which Mm -hmm. is like a bonus when you don't have a job or health insurance, which I didn't at the time. So. Mm, and and I hear there's a lot of cursing in the book. <laughs> we fucking love to curse on this podcast. Oh, so I just yeah. want to be clear that this is our thing. Well, um, what is what was so funny? Like my mom was, was asking me about the book and I was like, she's like, is there anything I need to know? And I was like, well, you know, I mean, I've already tried to tell you this, even though you don't want to listen to it. But I did a shit ton of drugs. I didn't say a shit ton. I said I did a lot of drugs uh, as a child mother. And she's like... Yeah, yeah, yeah. I know, I know. But, um, like, is there anything, like, do you make the family look bad? And I'm like, no, I don't think so. I think I make myself look bad. And I was like, but, you know, there is a lot of cursing, just so you know. And my mom said, she's she's a southerner, she's from Mississippi, and she said, well, I just think you could find better words. <laughs> no, <you can't. laughs> Fuck's the best fucking word. Like, A, it's fuck, then there's shit, asshole. Like, But I've been having a fucking panic attack over this for the last like three days I don't know why but I'm like I'm like do I need to like just I I almost did a control F for the word fuck (laughs) just in the document the other day because I was like no no you know what it was I saw that my book was going to be sold at Walmart and I was like and and the original title of the book was shit face that's what I sold it under and um, and it ended up not being first of all I I wimped out second (laughs) uh, it ended up kind of not being what the book was about Mm. but um, but I was I saw I saw on the publisher's page like buy this at Walmart and I was like oh fuck I hope they don't read it so how did you get into journalism and getting this book well, um, I got into journalism a zillion years ago in Texas, mm. um, and I was a, originally, um, I started out, I did my first internship at the Texas Observer, mm-hmm. which is um, a magazine still around, founded by Molly Ivins, yeah. and oh, I met yay. her once, I was so nervous, um, and um then I kind of I worked my way up through the Alternative Weekly um, mm-hmm. world, which Alternative Weeklies for the youths um, mm-hmm. were a thing that every city used to have back yep. in the day. And um, so I was a news editor at the Austin Chronicle, and then I moved out here to work for Seattle Weekly and then worked for The Stranger. And, yeah, so I've been doing this for more than 20 years now. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, as far as getting a book, that was like – I mean, it was it was such a strange – process and I think probably not that typical in that I had been sort of percolating ever since I got sober I've been percolating this idea of I want to write about this and I want to write about the aspects of it that I haven't read about um specifically relapse mm-hmm. and and just the idea that there's not one path to recovery and that there's not one definition of recovery and so um I Two years in, the idea just kind of came to me. Like the entire book sort of fell into my head, like fully written in a way, and wrote up an outline over the course of a weekend, like 50 pages. Um, started calling everybody I knew who had written books. And I really recommend that for anybody who wants to write a book. If you know anyone who's written a book mm-hmm. and published it in any context, like talk to them. Um, got an agent through one of those friends, um, actually from the Austin Chronicle uh, back in the day. Got an agent very quickly. And got a book deal within, I mean, I want to say a month. Wow. And I don't think that, again, I do not think this was (laughs) typical. I think I was very, very lucky. Mm. Um, But basically, yeah, just like I had this proposal and outline and my agent and I got it down to about 30 pages and started shopping it around to publishers. And there was a bidding process and um, yeah. And so I'm being published by uh, Viking Penguin Random House, which is very exciting and not what I would have expected like. Oh, I don't know, five and a half years ago. (laughs) But I do appreciate that you talk about relapse because I do think when you had made this point earlier that the books written about um, whether it's alcoholism, addiction of all kinds is always needs to end with like a Disney fucking movie, (laughs) which isn't helpful Mm -hmm. because that's not life. Right. 
And then it does like it's I think the U- United States narrative of you got to fucking crush it and then move on. And now your life is fucking great. And, and I went to rehab with a lot of guys like, oh, that, my God, they were all guys. Yeah. And it just I can't imagine that like talk. I mean, I know some phrases are overused. However, they're super apt, toxic fucking masculinity. And I think it adds to the, so so telling a real story that, and I have not read your book because it is not yet fully published, right? When is it coming out? It's coming out in July. July. Beginning so of July. I really haven't read it. <laughs> <laughs> um, is is naming the relapse. And, and what about that part did you feel um, that you wanted to name? Because it's also vulnerable. I mean, you're now telling the entire world um, oh, and there's a lot more shit in there. Like, I mean, it's, you know, the thing that I think is really interesting about relapse, I mean, for me, and I think this is true of a lot of other people, is it doesn't happen for a reason um, necessarily. Mm. Um, for me, it was like, and, you know, and I talk to other people and they say the same thing. Like, it could be it's a sunny day and it reminds you of like a really nice hike you took with and had a bottle of wine at the end. Or it can be like, you're just wandering. I mean, for me, literally, it was like, I had a couple months sober and I'm wandering in the supermarket and suddenly there's a bottle of vodka in my basket and I'm walking to, you know, to the counter. And it's like, it's not, it's not for any catastrophic reason in the same way that like rock bottom is this concept that I think we've inherited from movies and from people's, you know, recovery narratives where it makes a cleaner story if you have a rock bottom and then you get clean and then everything's fine. Um, But I don't think that happens. I mean, I think that is banishingly rare. And so, um, yeah, so for me, I, the reason I wanted to write about relapse is it's not anything dramatic, you know, at least for me. It was it was very anticlimactic. Was it, did you feel, um, I've heard from, like, my cousin wrote a memoir, and one of the things she said, and she wrote about severe, severe abuse, and one of the things she talked about was having to, like, go uh, to the beach and be near water to get back into her body. So how much of writing this brought back free or what was that process like is what I should ask. It was, um, you know, I blocked so much of it weirdly now, um, because I think people, um, it's like childbirth, I Mm -hmm. think, um, not that I've had kids, but like, I think it's, you know, the kind of thing that you get through and then you don't think about anymore so you can do it again. Um, but the process of writing it, I mean, it was, it was really painful, um, because I was talking about things, you know, in some cases that I have never talked about with anyone. And, um, you know, in some of my most like shameful and embarrassing moments, which are pretty bad, um, there was like, for, I'll give an example. There was, um, uh, I got caught shoplifting in 2000, I don't know, nine, 10, something like that, 2009. And I was shoplifting wine and it was cause I didn't have any money to buy alcohol. And, um, and that was a hugely public thing. It got written about and people still, I mean, to this day, like if you go on Reddit and anything gets mentioned about me, somebody will bring that up a hundred percent of the time. Um, and it was, you know, it was 11 years ago now, but who cares because nothing ever dies. So I had to write about that for the very first time. I'd never journaled about it. I'd never really talked to anybody about it. And there's a whole chapter in the book that's just about that. Um, and that was like, I mean, it was immensely painful, but also immensely cathartic because it was like, if this is on, on the page, it's, uh, it's real and it can't hurt me, you know, not power anymore. Even when they write yeah. about it, read, it's like, well, yes, you already wrote about that. So you know maybe- how you know about that? Cause you read my book. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> so, yeah. So there's a real like reclaiming of shame. I think that comes with just openly writing about stuff. And this is also why I wish like, you know, a lot more memoirs and a lot more. I wish more people would write about their experiences in a real way. And I wish more people that had really like, uh, you know, they call it an AA, a low bottom. And again, I don't believe in bottoms. Um, but uh, I um, I wish people would write more about that. And especially women, because like our shit can be like as nasty and as awful as, you know, as some like white guy who's writing a macho memoir about heroin. And, um, and I think we should be more willing to be ugly. And that's really what I tried to do, you know, honestly, is just to be kind of ugly. The, um, the wine bottle on the front, um, I argued really hard. It, it's not a wine glass, at least it was going to be. And I was like, I never fucking drank wine from a glass. Like I drank it from a fucking box. Right. Okay. And like, mm-hmm. and I was like, that really needs to be an empty, cheap w- vodka bottle mm-hmm. or a box of wine. <laughs> And this is, is the closest I can get. And it's a good compromise. I think it looks nice. But And if you buy six boxes at a time, you can get 10% on. Exactly.
Sarah. Chelsea. When you say that By the Sound is a community-invested podcast, what does that mean for our guests? It means that we pay them. Every guest interviewed is paid an appearance fee. Is it normal for podcasts to pay their guests? No. People say all the time that our time is our most valuable commodity, and yet most guests on radio and podcasts aren't paid a dime for their appearances. Huh. Our show's supporters who donate on Patreon help us to pay our local guests, and in doing so, they're investing in our local community. Are there other ways our Patreon supporters can help us pay our local guests? Yes. By the Sound community members who sign up for the Discovery, Westlake, or Gasworks membership levels are able to designate their first one to two months donations to a particular local guest of their choosing. Huh? If we are able to get an interview with the person they've chosen, then that guest will receive the amount that was pledged for them in addition to our normal guest payment. This is a great way for fans of the podcast to help us choose our guest, create a platform for interesting local people to share their voices, and to reinvest in our own community. Nice! How do listeners get in on this deal? They can visit buythesound.net and click the donate button. That's buythesound.net. Or they can go directly to patreon.com slash buythesound. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash by the sound what were we talking about oh uh, we were talking about your middle name christine but i always thought that you know crank was super apt because having <laughs> followed your your blog for a long time you work really fucking hard and you're like <laughs> i do in it like the verb crank. oh i like that yeah yeah uh, that's how i hear Sarah yeah I, 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 about it. I don't i i never took that uh to mean crank in, in the the, the meany way uh but in that's how it started though oh okay for sure it was just it was i had a column i used to um my colleague josh fight and i started a from the stranger started a website called public cola and i had a column there called the see us for crank and long story short the reason i called it that is because when i was writing for the stranger the slogs completely unmoderated comments um people would just constantly be like the c stands for cunt the c stands for you know whatever Usually it was cunt, but I mean, it, you yeah, know. Stay classy, Seattle. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Stay classy, yeah. Seattle. Yeah. So, yeah. So it was just like a ton of that. And I was like, you know what? Fuck you. Like, and so that was me kind of reclaiming that. Oh, I love yeah. it. But uh, but now it is a perplexing, a perplexingly named blog that I have to constantly explain to people when I am calling them for the first time. Well, I'll say actually, um, and and this is not just blowing smoke up your ass. This is completely <laughs> sincere. You were an inspiration in part. Uh, you're one of the people to inspire this podcast for me. Now that I am trying to transform, you know, all this highly professional uh, stuff that's falling down uh, in into something lucrative um, that it will at least pay for itself. Uh, you were an inspiration. Oh, well, thank you. Because. Clearly, you've been able to be self-employed by working your ass off and producing, like, good actual journalism. Like, not not just, you know, the kind of opinion stuff we do here on our podcast, which is not journalism and not, you know, some of the, the bullshit journalism that's around and is often the best paid, but you're doing – old real journalism well you know what's what's crazy is i mean i never would have thought i'd be self-employed i sit on the couch when i write mm-hmm. i mean like you know and i i never would have thought that i'd be able to but honestly what is wildest about it is i'm doing better financially than i was when i was writing for you know a paper that underpays people yeah um and i do work really really hard but i also travel a shit ton um, and, you know, there will be times, I mean, in two weeks um, from when we're recording this, um, I'm going to be disappearing for two weeks to just go travel around Europe for a while just because I got a cheap ticket. Um, cool. So that is like one of the best things about self-employment. I mean, I know the health insurance shit sucks and like my dental insurance keeps going up and like just everything, everything gets more and more expensive and you become kind of anti-tax. Um, <laughs> You can see how it happens. Yeah. For sure. Oh, yeah. yeah. I mean, yeah. my my whole family. You know, my parents were are entrepreneurs. They just retired. My grandparents were entrepreneurs. I mean, and yeah, and they like they're all like super anti tax and um and I and I can totally see why because it is really hard. But I think it's like it's God, it's so rewarding. Like just to be able to make your own time. I mean, yeah. just like being able to stay up for me, like stay up till one in the morning every night is believe it or not like a really big perk because <laughs> I don't have to be at an office at nine. Oh yeah. 
Which is horrible. Which is oh, it's it, horrible. It is. It's like <laughs> it's a w- dumb thing. Yeah, I don't have to go to meetings. <gasps> that yeah, alone, that too. Oh. fucking meetings. Uh, I I worked at an office job in between, like in between getting fired from my um, from my job um, at Publicola and um, and starting up the CSR Crank. I worked in an office job at a wonderful nonprofit for a while, but I did not understand the purpose of meetings, and I was like, and I was just, and I never did. I worked it's there for, for leadership ego. It, it's I can't, yeah. I, I got a great podcast episode to recommend about. I think it was on Planet Money. It's 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 all about, about the ego. Yeah, it's about reinforcing the ego of the leader. Well, and the language, like the, you know, did you read this piece on garbage language from the mm-hmm. New York Magazine? It's just you should read. I can't remember who wrote it, but it's um like from last week, mm-hmm. and it's just about all the like bullshit corporate speak. And I like again, I was working at a at a nonprofit, abortion rights nonprofit. And like, and there were all these terms that I had never heard. And I feel so naive, but they were like onboarding. And I was like, what the uh-huh. fuck is what that? What the fuck? Oh. Or like, um, you know, circling back mm. and just like all this like bullshit, meaningless, like we're going to add six more syllables to this phrase to make it nonsensical just so we can feel like we are like doing our jobs. I, I, anyway, it blew my mind. I'm so glad I don't have to deal with it, except like when I'm talking to politicians. It's <laughs> <laughs> true. Yeah, no. And the, yeah, and committee meetings. I work for a church. No shade to the church, but committee meetings and the the staff meeting. And I love our staff, but yeah, get, we go in circles. And there was somebody who tried to, um, I don't think he'll ever hear this podcast, but somebody was like, let's talk about our hopes and dreams. I'm like, are you fucking kidding me right now? Like every fucking week? I don't have that many. Like A, <laughs> like too much fucking pressure. And I'm like, I don't know. Hope get through the, I get through the week without punching somebody in the fucking face <laughs> who's passive aggressive and conflict avoidant. Will we ever have a podcast where you don't mention punching somebody in the face? It's bad. It is so no, bad. Is it's we a Jersey thing. It is. It is so because I really don't go around in any way. I'm not. So I've been called intimidating, which pisses me the fuck off because I'm like, I've never threatened to punch you in your face, like in the face. I do in my head, but not like, like or to other people. Oh. My last job, I was I was a boss, and I will hopefully never be a boss of other people again. But like, and I'm friends with one of my employees, one of my former employees. He, you know, he says he still says you were the worst boss I ever had. You were such a bitch, and and I'm like, because you had clear expectations and you fucking said what you thought. Because I wouldn't fucking babysit, and like, and I'm and I'm also granted not the most nurturing person. Perhaps (laughs) I'm really good at nurturing my plants, but um, probably not so much like because writers are fucking whiny. Like I tried so hard not to be. Right now, especially after working with writers, a little bit diva, diva. Yeah, I try to be like you know. I mean, my book. Um, I I wrote it, and my editor got back to me, and she was like, she's like, this is so good. We just need to completely change the structure, like, uh, (laughs) like I mean, completely, completely, and totally. Uh And also, um, here are like five hundred notes on phrases that I find um, to be overwritten, and. I am like, I swear to God, this is like, maybe this is related to sobriety because I'm not drinking because I was an angry drunk. But honestly, I was like, great. And I did it. And it's wow. so much better. And oh, she did good. such a good job. Oh, good. But yeah, but uh, yeah, it was my experience like working with writers who are just like, no, every word is precious and you can't touch any of my precious words. It's like, watch me, fucker. Yeah, exactly. Watch <laughs> me rewrite that. We have a deadline. Watch me rewrite the fuck out of this. <laughs> And yeah, so anyway, so I'm not in management anymore for obvious reasons. <laughs> You're confident and oh. and insecure people think that, you know, confident people, especially confident women, are aggressive or intimidating or, you know. Especially problem. confident black women, women They're of taking color. up too much space. I mean, and, and what's, I mean, I don't know. This is this is true for me. Like, I've also been called, I, I get called aggressive a lot because I, I get very angry. <laughs> I have a little bit of a hair trigger on certain issues, particularly around, like, dumb shit people are proposing on homelessness and things like that. I take oh, it personally. Yeah. Um, and... But I think, like, the the most ridiculous thing that people say to me personally is, like, oh, you just think you're right about everything. And I'm, like, I never think I'm right about anything. I second-guess myself all the time. Like, I, if you think I'm going around thinking that I am better and I am right, like, get that out of your head because I grew up in a, as a woman in this society and I question everything and I always wonder if I'm supposed to be speaking and I always wonder, like, if people are judging me and – like the idea, like the fact that you're confident, like doesn't mean you haven't taken all the messages and internalized them. Yeah. Mm. 
Thank you for saying that, because that's exactly how, I mean, people mistake my, and, and it sounds like you too, we have that in common, I, that resonates with me, that they make assumptions about who and what they think I am, and, and then, okay, so A, I do question myself all the time, and B, I'm a fucking person who has feelings, like, fuck you, like, people say the worst fucking shit to me that I'm kind of like, I'm still a human being, like, are you kidding me? Yeah. And I, I don't fully... Yeah, I've had people say to me, well, there are people who love you and there's people who hate you. And oh, I'm I like, know. Same. Okay. Yeah, right? <laughs> like, like, give me a list. Give me <laughs> Sure. And Write I, it I, down right here. Yeah, and give me addresses, too. <laughs> <laughs> oh, God. I have, I, that's the thing. I have, like, I mean, my, thin, my, my, skin, my skin has gotten thicker, um, but I still have thin skin. Like, I'm so thin skinned because I want people to like me, you know? I mean, like, that's just kind of like how, I mean, I think that's natural and human, but I also think it's extra how we're trained as women and like just, you know, the people who are supposed to talk in like baby voice and be submissive and like, you know, and all the, all the training that is out there. Um, so yeah, it's, you can't win. Well, and I, I missed out on a lot of that training um, in, so something I've found in adulthood, um, you know, I gender transitioned at the age of 35. <clears throat> and the differences in how I've been treated in professional workplaces are just extreme. <laughs> it's uh -huh. super fucking noticeable, you know. Yeah. When you transition, like, all of a sudden, like, if you don't put enough exclamation points and smiley faces <laughs> and, and massage your words enough – then people are going to think you're being too aggressive or too blunt or is basically a bitch. And, it, you know, when they would just ne not give it a thought. Yeah. Like you would before. be a strong leader if you're a male. <laughs> well, yeah, today somebody on Twitter was like, said something like, did I did I mishear you? You said blah, 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 blah on, on KUOW, and that doesn't make any sense. And, like, and I was in a rush, mm -hmm. and I wasn't trying to be a bitch, but I said yes. Um, and I said, I said, Yes, you did. Yeah. Here's what I said. And and then I and I hit tweet and then I was like second guessing it for like an hour. I was mm -hmm. like I was like, "Oh my god, I probably sound like such a bitch." And I should have been like, "Oh, sorry. No, here's what I said." You know, it's just it, it's so it's oh my god, it's so pervasive. And I didn't change it and I was like, "You know what? It's fine. Like let's normalize being like talking like normal people yeah. and talking the way that like that men can talk all the time." I don't care if people are mad at me. I hate it. The part that gets my goat is when people, like, I've had people lie about me a lot, and, and that pisses me off. Like, you could be pissed at me. Oh, I fuck hate that be pissed so much. about the truth. But like, you can't do anything. That's the thing. There's nothing. Do anything. That's the maddening thing. Because yeah. the more you, what I've learned now that I'm going to be 50 this year <laughs> is the more I, tr what ha okay, so I read it, like, maybe this came from AA. Never try to explain yourself to people committed to misunderstanding Misunder yeah. you. Yeah, yeah. And once I read that, like, about five or, maybe it was eight years ago now, I was like, oh, that's what I've been doing wrong. But if I just explain the fucking mm -hmm. truth, I put oh, that in quotes, no. yeah. doesn't, it was, like, I was, it was making it worse, and I finally and stopped. It, it takes so much energy, too. I mean, like, people, like, I remember, well, to this day, like, fucking Reddit. I mean, I should never look at Reddit. But no. but also Twitter, whatever, social media. Like, they say I got fired from The Stranger. And I find that very frustrating because I quit in a bit of a huff about some really specific reasons of shit mm. that was going on that was making me dissatisfied with my job there. Um, and I used to try to like say, no, actually I quit. You want to see my resignation letter? It's four pages long. Like, you know, and, um, and it just, it didn't make a difference. Like it doesn't matter what the truth is. So I had that Facebook post this week. Um, it's that I, this once in a blue moon, something of mine will be shared a lot this week. I, I think now it's probably up to like 2000 shares or something, which is a lot for me. Uh, but somewhere around 400, the Bernie bros started coming out of the woodwork. And um, uh, in one day I was deleting, uh, I think it was about 30 comments and blocking all of those people because I am not engaging with this shit. It's just, I think that's really smart. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like I had to learn that lesson the hard way mm. and I will keep having to learn it the hard way. Cause it's, it's just, it's really hard not to fight back. Well, I mean, it's like, as I've said before in this podcast, Facebook gave you uh, your own wall, you know, where you you can take a shit on your own wall. Don't take a shit on someone else's wall. Yeah. Right? Well, that's why I have like a very strict comments policy. Mm -hmm. um, 
And I, I don't know if are you familiar with the the it's now defunct the blog Shakespeare. Um, it used to be called Shakespeare's Sister. Um, I I wrote there for a while, Mm -hmm. um, back uh, 10 years ago now. And um, and the thing I loved about it so much is it was truly um, a safe space. uh, And that was their comments policy was this is a safe space. And it was the most amazing fucking place on the internet. I mean, they would get 400 comments, 700 comments, but they were all like super heavily moderated. And I don't, I don't get that many comments. So it's really easy for me to moderate the ones that are like, you're a bitch, you know, Mm -hmm. um, fuck yourself and die, or I know where you live or whatever. Mm -hmm. But, um, but yeah, it's like, it's my, it's my sandbox, you know, don't come and piss in it. Yeah. But Twitter is the opposite of that. (laughs) I I know you're one of the most visible people in Seattle and, you know, a very high profile on the internet. So thank you for, uh, you know, absorbing so much abuse that uh, an outspoken woman on the internet will will find well it was so i mean when i i tweeted something about about bernie we're not even going to get into what okay but um but like almost immediately and and the same observation was being made by lots of other people um but like almost immediately like somehow i i use the term um okay well, i'll say what it was so just because it's necessary to understand what happened um i use the term bernard brothers Yes. <laughs> and St. Bernard. I thought right, St. Bernard. That's, that's what I'm using from hilarious. now on. Hilarious. But um but it you. it immediately it immediately became I am um I'm being first it was I'm being sexist against women and then it became um because because that implies oh. that they're all and I was like, you know what? Um I lived through 2016 and I think this is actually like a gender inclusive term at this point. Yeah, I mean. And yeah. if it's not about you, it's not about you. I mean, I'm obviously making a joke by not saying Bernie Bros, you know, anyway, but they mm-hmm. somebody had some search term and they like, you know, sent it to all the the bots and the harassers and um and it was and it just evolved into like, you know, I'm somehow racist like because bro implies white which i was not aware of and like you know and uh, like uh, erasing we're grasping for straws i mean i was i was erasing everybody and so i and i honestly like for for i stuck with this for about a month i was like i am just fucking disengaging and like i'm for warren but fuck all of y'all i'm not gonna say anything you win and then of course i started talking about it again because i can't (laughs) help myself but yeah it was it was off i mean it's silencing works i mean that's the sad thing like if you if you screen if you have three thousand i mean i had thousands and thousands of people coming after me and bots whatever yeah and um and i was like okay you win it worked bye and that sucks yeah. You know, I mean, it just, it's awful. Around that time that was happening to you, Natalie Wynn, whom I referred to on the show before as trans Jesus, uh, was getting canceled <laughs> uh, on on Twitter by a lot of very unreasonable people. And uh, she came out with this very long video about cancel culture. And, you know, by the end of it, like kind of all these, you know, pregnant ideas I had about how it's bad for humanity Mm -hmm. (laughs) like just it it just clarified it for me i'm like you know what i shouldn't be a part of this i have had some second thoughts it's sort of a a unilateral disarmament to Mm -hmm. uh go off of twitter but then i just i don't think you can go off of twitter i I mean i really (laughs) did this is just this is my you have to be on something right um i think instagram is a more pleasant place but i don't know really know how to use it yet i'm better at facebook i'm i think that's i mean it's like yeah and if you're not like if you're not into taking photos of yourself all the time or taking photos of other things or like doing whatever it is that people do on instagram and and i'm saying this because i'm trying to get more on instagram right now but twitter is better for me because it's words um and it's also short which I will go on for 2,000 words if I don't have a limit. Um, but, I mean, I think you have to be on one of them, and it sucks. Like, if you're famous, if you're Lindy West, I mean, not not no shade on Lindy, but, like, you don't have to be on Twitter, and you can flounce off and tell people to fuck off. But, like, I don't feel like I can afford to do that. Yeah. I mean, that's my main platform. Like, you know, on a given day on my website, like, 2,000 people might read it, and I might have 200,000 impressions on Twitter. And so. the whole cancel culture thing, it's like, that's now been, you, like, they're destructive fucking Harvey Weinstein piece of shit. I'm looking at you. Like, there's people that need to be taken out of power. And maybe the word canceled is bullshit, too. But, like, there are there are issues of liberation and oppression, misogyny, misogynoir, 
black trans women are, I mean, there's things that are happening where people are complicit who are in power that need to be challenged. So then what happens is like, what, who gets canceled? You, a female journalist who's writing and trying to bring real journalism to the internet in a, in a responsible way gets fucking attacked. So it's like, it feels like turning on its head. I mean, I will say, I don't, I, I don't think I'm one of those people that doesn't really think cancel culture is real. It's and here's real. why, but yeah. meaning like, I don't feel like I got canceled. Right. Exactly. You know, I just feel That's like I got true. harassed again. Yeah. And it's a different, yeah. it's a different day, different like method. Like now it's Twitter and like, it's more people. It's a meaningless term. It's a meaningless like, term. Like politically correct. I mean, it's I think it's kind of a funny term now right. because like none of these fucking guys actually get canceled. Like none of the bad guys ever, like Weinstein is like maybe the one scalp that we have to show. Maybe. Anyway, but like, but yeah, That's I mean, true, I but agree. like, look at Louis C.K. Like, there was. <sighs> I, <laughs> we need to make a grossed out noise. He's just a this. fucking. He's dick. a piece I of did. shit. And not funny. I mean, and, and just not so funny. not funny. But like, he just, you know, I'm like reading New Yorker, and then all of a sudden, like, here's his fucking face and this piece about him, and it's all about like, you know, it's all about his new show, and like, doesn't really talk about why he got quote unquote canceled in the first place until the very like last four or five paragraphs. And it's like, oh, I guess like. The next time there's a story about this, we're just going to bump those out of the story entirely. So, well, you you came here from Texas, and I'm wondering what that was like for you culturally, because I I I, I feel a lot of dissonance and understanding of of Seattle, like politically. Um, I I just found out, you know. 52% are democratic or democratic leaning meaning 48% are not. So is that I'm in Seattle? In C- in the C- city of Seattle, uh-huh. right? And I I if I'm recalling correctly the data from 2016 was like one in six voters was voting for Trump, you know, which kind of seems crazy to me because I I want Seattle to be a safe space and I don't want to be like oh my god, one in six of these people like, you know. <laughs> yeah. is a, basically a Nazi. Uh, but then I, I also hear a lot of complaints, you know, about liberals uh, being problematic here. Mm-hmm. I think that's true everywhere. I mean, to be honest, but like, I think that the issue in the Northwest, and I think probably this is true in Portland too. Um, although in Portland, the issues of I think inequality are a little bit less because it's you know it's just more affordable there still, and there are less millionaires. I mean, the latest number was like. Tech workers make an average total compensation of $269,000. Average. Which, I mean, you know, I mean, even if that's being skewed by some people who are making $20 million or something like that, like, it is it is outrageous and it's absurd. I mean, the inequality. But I, but I also think, like, in the Northwest, I mean, we are not racially diverse here, and that is the issue. Like, the fact that there is the—I mean, when I moved here from Texas, and to be clear, I moved here from Austin, and I grew up in Houston, and those are both pretty liberal places, yeah. Austin especially, yeah. and um, and in the 90s, you know, even more so. Um, I fe- felt I was really—I um, had a real culture shock, and I still do to a certain extent, even though I've lived here almost 20 years. I find the culture— um, the dominant culture here um, to be really, you know, to have sort of willful blinders on or about race and um, and and also class. I mean, if you I remember I have one of the times that I really got shit online was when I referred to Ballard as a wealthy area, which it is. And when I referred to it as a white area, which it is, it is one of the whitest areas of the city. Mm-hmm. Um, the white people of Ballard were well, I won't say the white people of Ballard. I will say the people who are screaming at me very loud on Twitter and um, and also in person. I mean, I had, you know, I've had people come up to me and sort of physically get in my oh space my to yell at me about this stuff. And it's because I'm saying that, like, that, yes, if you live in Ballard in a house that has appreciated to, you know, $2 million or whatever your little bungalow is now, you were rich. Like, mm-hmm. you may not feel like on a day-to-day basis you're rich, but you are. So... But I think that going back to race, I mean, I think the biggest culture shock was going from a place that was diverse to and multilingual. And Seattle, parts of Seattle are diverse and multilingual. The South End still is, the far South End and the far North End um, both are. But for the most part, you know, if you're working at a job downtown, if you're working in politics, um, as I do, I mean, it is a monoculture. And it was really, really unnerving to me when I first moved here. I mean, I was literally, like, I'm from Houston, you know, um, you know, and I was like, where are all the Latinos? Like, there's no Hispanic people mm. here. 
And that's kind of what blew my mind the most, just coming from where I came from. Um, but also like it is just it's it's a white culture and that's that's the lens that people see things through, you know, the majoritarian culture here. And I mean, the white culture in places where I don't know, I want to pick like a place like I lived in North Dakota. They're not pretending to be liberal. I think the part that sticks in my craw is the whole like, how about you help if you're going to have a Black Lives Matter sign in front in your lawn? Help a black family keep their home. Mm -hmm. If you're going to do a land acknowledgement, pay real rent to Wamish. Like to me, the the epitome of that was when Bernie Sanders was here in the first election mm -hmm. when he because he feels like now he's just going to run in every one. Um, and the two Black Lives Matter black women mm -hmm. interrupted him, and he, somebody got bit. Like one, somebody bit another person in the audience, and I always go back to that. Like there it is. Like. So some a white person said to me the next day, like, oh, but he's on their side. And I said, you tell me how to get justice for a 12-year-old who was a black 12-year-old mm -hmm. child sitting on a swing murdered by the state with impunity. You tell me what you're going to shut down if that was your child. Mm -hmm. You brought up Bernie, and I think it is a very um, sort of like race last mentality. Um, it's yeah. about class. But it's not even, I mean, I would say that like the class analysis of most people in the city is not very profound because they've, because a lot of people have gotten theirs. And the, 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 like the signs that say, I mean, I write about housing and land use and the signs that say, you know, black lives matter, all people matter, et cetera, et cetera. Um, you know, they're in front of single family houses yeah. and often people who oppose building more housing Okay, and people who, you know, aren't necessarily happy when they see a, a tent pitched in a park in, you know, quote unquote, their neighborhood um, and will call, you know, the cops or find it, fix it to get it taken away without considering that's a human being. Um so, you know, I think, I don't know. I mean, I guess the answer is everybody's analysis in Seattle is sort of, um, is sort of blind, blinkered by, you know, their privilege and this tremendous amount of wealth we have in the city. Yeah. And, and the, the statistics I was mentioning, those were new. Those were from Gene Balk. Um, uh, that, that thing, 52% uh, identifying as democratic or democratic leaning. And so, I mean, that just, like, surprised me. Like, I didn't expect there to be a majority saying they're Democrats, but I did expect Democratic leaning to push that up way high. Like, if 48% of people aren't saying, like, in the city, aren't aren't identifying as Democrat when asked lean Democrat, and then, like, what, 28 29% were Republican identifying? But, see, this is what I, this is my theory about independence. I think they want attention. I think that's all it is. It's, it's the same thing <laughs> as, it's the I same thing as people who say they're undecided. I don't believe anybody is truly Thank undecided. You. And, like, and Me so, either. like, right now, supposedly undecided is leaning in the Washington primary. Right, I, yeah. I just think, I think it's people who want attention and they don't want to be like a member of a party and they don't want to like be part of the crowd and they're like they think of themselves as iconoclastic and i think that is part and parcel with the tech economy mm. and oh, yeah. um and i and i really i i think that if people were being honest a much higher percentage of people would say yes i'm democratic leaning okay fine i'm liberal but um but i this is this is truly my theory i think mm -hmm. independents like are either republicans secretly and they just don't want to say it or they're lefties of some persuasion who want to be iconoclast. I will say for as much as I get annoyed at some things in Seattle, I'm glad to be in the bubble. Can I go back to Texas for one Please. second though? One thing that I also really noticed here and like more and more um, I miss about writing about politics in Texas is like, I mean, there are a lot of things locally that are a really big deal here that are not a big deal, as big a deal in places like Houston, like homelessness um, is a tragedy here. And it's, you know, and it's the main thing I cover now for that reason. But I also feel like there is more, um, strangely, honesty about politics in a place like Texas. I mean, I was covering the legislature. So it's at the time it was about half Republican, half Democrat. It's much, you know, more heavily Republican now. But it felt like there were clear lines. There were clear things that people were fighting for. And it wasn't as much, there wasn't as much time for people to be performatively liberal or to be mm. performatively like on the right side mm -hmm. of things because there were like, you know, I mean, I, one of the things I wrote about the most in Texas, cause I was covering, um, the state while George W. Bush was the, um, governor, 
um, was a death penalty. And, um, and I feel very strongly about the death penalty. I, you know, done, did some activism around it and then became, a, you know, a reporter and reported on it. And to me, like, that's a life and death thing where you actually can, I mean, you know, despite like maybe how it is now, you actually can sort of agree to disagree on some issues because this issue is so important. Whereas I feel like in Seattle, like it's just a constant kind of policing of whether you're being performatively woke enough and not about whether you're actually doing the work and, you know, and making a difference. And so, I mean, I'm not saying Texas is a better state. It's a fucked up state and Mm -hmm. politics there. I mean, I do think it's going to be a blue state in our lifetimes and probably not very far, not long from now. I know. Register to vote. It'll be amazing. I mean, because that will change everything when it happens. I mean, assuming like they stop suppressing people's votes. I mean, and that is that is the only reason, right? I mean, because Texas is largely Latino. And if everybody was eight who, you know, is allowed to vote, you know, could vote in practice, I mean, it would flip immediately. But um, I mean, the political divisions there are a lot sharper, but it also feels like they're over things that are a little more real. Um, whereas, you know, sometimes in Seattle, it can just feel like liberals eating each other. Well, it's the, the performativity. I wouldn't, I, I don't think of it in terms of wokeness, but I, but in, in, in terms of, um, de- definitely performativity. I, I did one of those, um, uh, compass political compass things i was probably just telling cambridge analytica like my whole ass but <laughs> i don't care like i mean i anyway, it's too late it's, it's too late so for late. all of us <laughs> you know do what you will with that cambridge uh i you know but i was like down like way 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 down in the fucking corner and i'm wondering like why do i know these irl like bernie bros here in seattle who just can't stop calling me a corporatist or that's, like that's what I shitting mean. on me every time. It's like I I am so far to the left. Like I I don't know how I don't know the people the people who have um, been most policing of my behavior online have mm-hmm. absolutely been dudes, <laughs> white dudes. Um, yeah, you know that that have a lot of time to be online during the day yeah. for whatever reason, and um, you know, and and I feel like. Like, what if we put all that energy towards, you know, oh, I don't know, like ending homelessness, um, you know, advocating for housing, um, advocating against the sweeps that are happening like right now as we speak. Um, and um, You're fighting fascism. I don't know. Just something, something, something other than like other than something useful yelling online and at women at, at women. And yeah. And I um So, yeah. So that's that's the one thing I, I do miss about. Texas and just as a reporter selfishly it's interesting to cover Republicans and mm. you know um I don't get to do that here really My friend's a reporter in College Station Texas Oh for man the <gasps> he's got fucking stories that you will well you can imagine they're pretty funny <laughs> I'm like and he's telling me shit and I'm like that can't be fucking real he's like oh no it's real like I worked for a guy briefly who you know was a democrat and he, but he was a very conservative democrat and um and he you know he supported the death penalty which was just like really hard for me but I was like I want a little like, political experience so whatever but yeah I mean he would do shit like tell me to sit on his lap you know I mean and that was <laughs> oh just like God. that was like, just it's like not funny but it's like so standard and it probably isn't anymore you know even in Texas but like you know, I mean, one of my first stories was about this guy named Buster Brown, who was like basically like in the in bed with a chemical lobbyist and like polluting the shit out of you know the area of the South. It's called the Cancer Belt, and like and I got you know you get to interview these people, and it's it is fascinating. Like as a reporter, that's you want to be able to actually. I mean, speaking as a reporter, not necessarily a citizen of the place. Like right. you want to be able to talk to those people and. And here, I mean, it's true. There's not a lot of, you know, a lot of that. So just strictly as a reporter, I also miss that a bit. It is fascinating, I would imagine. Just the cartoonishness of it to all. If it wasn't so destructive, it would be funny. What kind of city would you like to see Seattle become? Boy, I would love for it to become a city where someone like me, um, starting out a young person can, um, in, in a field like journalism or nonprofit or, you know, working as a social worker can actually get an apartment. That is like such a privilege, I guess, that I had when I was, you know, 
21, 22, living in Austin, which is a city that is developed under similar lines. You know, it's very unequal. It's very stratified. So I would like to live in a city where the um, the top 1% don't make 50 times, you know, and, and that's not a statistic, mm-hmm. but just, you know, tremendous amount more yeah. than people who are trying to get a leg up in the world because it feels increasingly like the path that I took to where I am is not available to people anymore. And that that's really that's really sad to me because I wouldn't move to Seattle today. I mean, there's if I was 24 years old and I was trying to get a job, I I wouldn't move here. I would say that's off the table. Like that's just not a place where people like me live. Yeah. So I just I want to see, you know, more more diversity of income. I want to see a more diverse city. Um, that's very important to me that and it's not that's not the trend now. The trend is the opposite. And I think that is, you know, a complicated question that I'm not qualified to find all the solutions to. But um, but yeah, I mean, I would just I would like to see a lot more different types of people being able to think of this as a place they can call home like in the long term. Erica C. Barnett is behind com and the author of Quitter, a memoir of drinking, relapse, and recovery. Erica, thank you very much. Thank you. This has been fun. Chelsea, what are you grateful for this week? Fuck you. <laughs> <laughs> this is why I suggested a new question, because I, I, I... It seems like whenever I ask people what they're happy about, they get angry, and I, I guess the hope hostile, doesn't work they get either. At like the at the question about happiness, and yeah, hope. like you. inevitably every fucking time. So I was like giving in. I was like, okay, you know, maybe I, I, I'm wrong here. I'm. <laughs> um. Okay, I'm grateful for my gardens, indoors and outdoors. I think we've talked about this before, but like the landscaping at my house is fucking bananas and May is like the absolute best month. So like the roses are popping, the irises are popping, the calla lilies, the poppies, like everything is going fucking bonkers. Um, And it really like helps me keep my shit together. And I've also like really doubled down on my orchids. Have we talked about this? Do, no, do I, go into this with you? I love orchids. Okay. I love orchids. They're one of my favorite flowers. And I, like many people, buy orchids in bloom. And once the blooms are spent, I'm just like, uh, <laughs> what the fuck am I going to do with this guy? And they just sort of languish in my house until mm-hmm. they eventually get root rot and die. So I've decided to revive. Let's see, how many have I got? I have eight orchids, but I got a grow light for them and I got orchid food and my new project is getting my orchids to bloom again, which like is honestly a pretty chill project. Like I just turn the light on once a day. I spray them with food once a week. Like it's not like I'm not over here with the sourdough starter. Like I I don't have the time or the patience. I'm not like sewing gorgeous masks with like fringe and like mirrors and beads what i can handle is uh flicking the light on spraying some guys yeah so we'll see i mean see it's a very passive hobby uh the the, the trick yeah. is remembering yes yeah and just like generally my plants are i really do think of them as my friends um <laughs> like i talk to them I sing them little songs. Feed me, I... Chelsea. Feed me. <laughs> what are we talking about? Oh, yeah. What are you grateful for, Asia? I am. So I'm going to stay with the plant theme. I'm terrible at plants. And maybe it's because I ignore them, which is me. I killed a basil plant that I bought from Trader Joe's that I didn't think were killable. But here's what I'm grateful for. I bought a mint plant. Ooh, I put yeah. it in a different place. <laughs> I know they're so hardy and it lets me know when it's sad. Like it just starts drooping a little bit. Yeah. I add some water and it lives. And so I'm grateful that this one mint plant <laughs> I've been keeping alive longer than the poor basil plant that went south so, or went off the rail. I felt very sad about it because I want to grow things. I feel bad that I, I cook. So that I feel like that's a thing I make, but I would love to be more into growing things. Um, 
You can, I don't have plants. I should, but I don't because I killed them and I feel bad. I killed a cactus, overwatered it. I, yeah. Oh, yeah. I've done that. That happens. Yeah. So yeah. I, I think that's been happening a lot during quarantine, too, because people uh, <laughs> suddenly have a lot of time to focus on their cactus, and that poor cactus <laughs> does not want it. That does okay. not want it at all. On uh, that note, what are you grateful for, Sarah? <laughs> <laughs> I am grateful that they wrapped shooting on The Crown. Season four of The Crown, uh, a smack in the middle of March. And so there will be a fourth season coming out this fall, presumably. It, and it won't just have uh, Helena Bonham Carter again as uh, my beloved Princess Margaret, but we'll also have Gillian Anderson as the Iron Lady, Margaret oh, Thatcher. Shit. Um, oh, shit. Did not see that coming. And... <laughs> Oh, it's going to be great. And it's going to, you know, introduce Princess Di, and it's going to cover the years um, 1979 to 1992. Oh, which, the hair's going to be so bad. Um, yeah, and, and it's going to be amazing. It's just going to be fucking amazing. I can't wait. Another thing that's going to be amazing is I'll get to see Hamilton on July 3rd because Disney recorded the original cast on stage and they were withholding it until like the summer of 2021. But now they're pushing it out onto Disney plus um, on July 3rd. So all, all, all of us uh, plebeians who have never seen Hamilton, but have just listened to the soundtrack about a hundred times, will finally get to see what's going on. I'm excited about it. My fourteen-year-old uh, is excited about it, and we're we're gonna watch. So, I'm so happy to see you both. Also, I miss it's you. It's good to see you guys. I miss you. I well, love you. We'll be doing it again soon. Mm-hmm. And this has been By the Sound, your community invested podcast. By the Sound is an Ahoy Hoy Media production. Ahoy Hoy!